0: This week in the armchair, I got my man Garrett. And as always, we have the world to discuss.
1: That's right. Lots of exciting news.
0: But before we get to that, let's touch on the important thing for this Friday. What are you having to drink?
1: I am drinking a cocktail called the Monte Carlo. Uh, This is a bourbon... Benedictine and Angostura bitters cocktail. A little bit of an interesting departure for me. I'm, I'm more of a tiki guy, uh, especially on a Friday, but it's sort of an interesting, um, interesting cocktail. I'm, I'm not quite sure how I feel about it, if I'm being honest. Uh, the uh, the bourbon is from our friends over at Bespoken Spirits. Uh, this is their, I think their their straight bourbon. Um, it's very good in most things. I'm not sure I'm feeling about it in this though. So. Come back to me later.
0: Very interesting. Well, because today, this week was a little bit of a celebration for me, I have a bottle of Prosecco, which I am. Andrew,
1: what are you celebrating?
0: Uh, I closed on my new house. so Oh, that's
1: very exciting.
0: It is. And so. Whoa, that's fun. Oh, that no, good. Don't don't let it go up your nose. It's not going up the nose, thankfully. Mm. Thankfully.
1: So a little bit of the bubbly a to celebrate. Bubbly. Uh, always always an excuse to celebrate.
0: Ah, oh, uh, yes. So now that we are both prepared, I think we should start off where we've been talking about for months in the Ukraine.
1: Yes. That is uh, that is always the top story in geopolitics uh, ever since February. Or at least, at least here on the armchair. At right? least in the armchair. in the armchair. It should be the top story everywhere as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah. I'm sure the Ukrainians, Zelensky wants it to be. And I think he's afraid um, that going into the winter there's going to be some pressures, if, especially if there aren't these battlefield victories constantly to buoy – buoy his allies. Yeah,
1: we've had a couple of interesting developments over the past couple of weeks, uh, not least of which is these terror attacks that are very reminiscent of the Blitz over Kiev and other um, major Ukrainian cities targeting civilians and infrastructure. These appear to be Iranian purchased drones and uh, Shahid-136 drones uh, that, are, that are termed suicide drones. So they c- come in over the target and then they enter a, a suicide dive and they detonate once, uh, once they impact the ground. Uh, pretty, and they have a loitering capacity as well. Yeah, I think that's true. And our, their range is something like 1,500 miles, I think. Um, so they can come in from you know inside a Russian territory or, or Belarusian territory uh, Pretty and pretty much strike most of uh, Ukraine's landmass. So that has uh, been a, a negative development. I know life for uh, many in in Kyiv and in uh, Western Ukraine had returned to something approaching normal for a country at war, but this again has brought uh, conflict directly into into people's. Homes again, uh, lots of civilian casualties, lots of damaged infrastructure, lots of uh, power outages and and these sorts of things. And no tactical strategic benefit other than terror. Um, so this has been a really depressing development for those of us who uh, were hoping for uh, Ukraine to continue to push push the Russians back.
0: What are your thoughts? I, I agree. I think this is a, they're, this is lashing out. There's – they realize they can't use them really in a tactical way. They have to launch them in swarms. I mean they – I think I read that they – the Russians tried to buy 1,700 of them. So this isn't something that uh, is really used on the battlefield to great effect. Uh, I guess you could target fixed positions but the way that the Ukrainians are fighting – makes that hard. I've also read that the Ukrainians are shooting down a high percentage of them yeah I saw some that, get through I
1: saw that they shot down 19 out of 20 that were deployed yesterday. so you know that's uh, an outstanding achievement for anti-air defenses in Ukraine but um, you know when they're when you're doing these swarm attacks some will get through and and uh, and cause mayhem and terror on the ground so not great
0: absolutely. And the, the targets are, you know, recently have been in infrastructure, as you said, energy infrastructure in particular. I think they're trying to scare them, turn off the electricity, turn off the water, turn off the heat. And I saw some comments that, you know, the lights will go back on if, uh, you know, the Ukrainians capitulate. And that's not going to happen. At this certain point, they just become desensitized to it. And if anything else, I think it's shooting the Russians in the foot when they target civilians in this way. It's not how the collective West likes to conduct war or at least think of ourselves in the way we like to conduct war. And it puts the Russians in more opposition. It's – it's from Zelensky's perspective, it makes going out and seeking funding and allies easier. You say, look, they're just bombing our – I mean even as pleas to Israel's are starting to, to get something back, uh, maybe not what he wanted, but it's – it's it's odd timing i would say it's uh it says something about the russian military industrial complex so to speak when they're not using their own munitions anymore cuz they've run out
1: indiscriminate civilian bombing never achieves battlefield success uh so they they're not there's this is not uh, going to result in the Ukrainian capitulation any faster than uh just fighting them on the battlefield um yeah I don't really see the point in it either other than cruelty, which I guess is the point. What else is going on in Ukraine this week? I read
0: well I did yeah I did read that uh defense minister Shogu has declared that the partial mobilization is complete. they have their three hundred thousand troops of which I think over eighty thousand have already been sent to the front, which tells you. They haven't been getting much training. I think we've all seen some of the reporting on troops that, within days of being mobilized, were sent to the front with very limited equipment, and that ties into something else that I think we should talk about in more detail: is uh, President Putin setting up a committee to, in essence, try and spur internal uh, development and. Production of war materials, and he himself is chairing this committee. So it's it's very telling uh, that th- that's the state of the Russian economy and the state of Russian industry.
1: Yeah, they they're not in a good way militarily, uh, economically, and the longer this conflict goes on, I think the worse the outcome for everyone. It's been, but there's been some other developments. Uh, as well that lead me to believe that this opportunity to uh, cause a unmitigated strategic defeat on Putin might not come together as one may have hoped. Um, progressive members of Congress in the United States released a letter this week Suggesting that the only way to end the conflict was direct negotiations between Russian President Putin and, and the U.S. and I, this is a wrongheaded in every way, in my view, uh, just completely nonsensical. Uh, we don't have a direct position with regard to Ukraine's sovereignty. How can we negotiate on Ukraine's behalf if they don't want to don't don't want to engage in those negotiations? And and to me it it signals um a, a sense that putin has uh some legitimacy in arguing that the the that ukraine is integral to their um society so i don't know it's it's disappointing
0: i'm very disappointed with that going off what you said i i agree with you i think it is an unmitigated disaster for the Russians. I at this point foresee capitulation on their part, change, regime change, not yet. And I think some of that does come from the fact that there's going to be a certain level of waffling. I mean, you remember in the beginning of this conflict, as soon as Ukraine kind of went on the on the offensive, there were there were countries in Europe who were talking about don't humiliate Putin. And with that idea as a backdrop, it's like somehow he invaded another country and another country's troops push him out. And that's humiliation for Putin, which boggles my mind.
1: Humiliated himself, some might say.
0: Exactly. But at the same time, democracy is messy. And so a lot of these Western countries, you have divergent viewpoints. But I I still am hopeful that there's going to be a collective support through the winter and one thing that was reassuring and somewhat ironic i just read was that the uk has more natural gas right now than they know what to do with that there are liquefied natural gas tankers sitting off their coast cuz their capacity is is full and with the milder winter so far they haven't been using it and with the economic downturn industry is using less power and heat and so there's this glut of liquefied natural gas in the European market. Is it getting to every country equally? No, but there's a lot of it available. And that's very telling. And I know we'll probably touch on OPEC later, but those concerns that we're going to see freezing temperatures and you know no no energy resources in Europe, at least for the moment, Sea bounded, which is which is a good thing for Ukraine.
1: Yeah, and we have to continue to hope that uh, a mild winter in Europe will hold and, and uh, energy prices will remain affordable. You know the the British Prime Minister Liz Truss, Prime Minister for less than six weeks, on a, a, a culmination of uh, bad tax. Policy and, and energy policy, and a whole witch's brew. So, I don't know if Britain is exactly in a good position to weather uh, <laughs> the storm this winter. We'll see. I'm skeptical that uh, with British politics in the state it is, I'm a little bearish on the future of Britain, but we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong, you know, thousand years and all that. And they've been around a long time. So, uh, Moving on to other Ukrainian news, it appears that the Russian uh, authorities in Kherson are preparing for a major push uh, for Ukrainian forces to recapture all of the western bank of the Dnieper, uh, including evacuating civilians, sometimes by force, as well as packing up cultural and artistic treasures uh, in the city and moving them deeper into Russian-controlled territory. This included the bones of General Potemkin, a famous 19th century Russian war hero who captured Crimea from the Turks during the uh, Russo-Turkish War. Uh, they, they packed up his bones, they packed up his statue and carted it off further east to protect it from the uh, the vicious invading Ukrainians who are reclaiming their own territory. So sort of very interesting stuff going on. Very interesting developments. In
0: Absolutely. America. Amusing, musing, I mean, very amusing. But uh, to take Grigory Potemkins, who at one point was the governor general of Russian southern provinces, in, uh, out of his, his tomb in a church, cathedral, and bring it back, I guess, to the – to what they consider more Russian territory. I mean, I, I find it ironic. I'm sure this is just for a domestic audience. But, you know, it had been probably lying in there for 200 years without being disturbed and now this is a –
1: He's a real symbol of Russian imperialism. So the – The optics around the the recapture of his tomb were probably unacceptable to Russian revanchists who want to imagine themselves to be reconquering imperial territory for the new czar. Um, But just it's very it's very curious. Like this is the this is the priority, uh, not the defense of Kherson from the Russian perspective, not, uh, not reinforcing. No, they're going to waste time and manpower on exhuming 200 year old bones, evacuating them to some tiny village somewhere between Kherson and the Russian border. I just, I don't, I don't understand the logic, but uh, I'm not a Russian. So
0: it really reminds me that this in so many levels is almost like a farce. Like you couldn't write – it's like a Greek comedy, right? You couldn't write this. Like a decade ago, no one would be like, oh, they're going to invade the Ukraine. They're going to get stuck in this war. They're basically going to have their professional military stopped and decimated, more than decimated. And here we are. We're talking about they're going to potentially lose the only regional capital that they took. And that's it.
1: Farce is exactly, yeah, farce is exactly the right word. It's very much a farce. It's been sort of the same as it's been for the last couple of weeks. Strong Ukrainian advances across a couple of axes. Uh, Russian failure to create strong defensive positions. And uh, we're getting close, as we've been saying, we're getting close to winter. So these lines will probably freeze up. Uh, no pun intended. Over the next couple of weeks, probably by the 1st, we're going to stop seeing these huge Ukrainian swings. The territories will kind of solidify and then we'll probably be in a steady state until the next fighting season, is my guess. I suppose it's possible that Ukraine will uh, surprise everyone with another breakout. Winter offensive. In the winter, uh, winter offensive. I don't, I don't know. I'm not seeing that. Sort of in the offing. I also feel like as Ukraine performs so well on the battlefield, it is stretching its supply lines, it's taxing its logistical capacity. You know, you never want to be in a position where your offensive outruns the rear echelons and you can't get armaments and reinforcements and uh, and everything else you need fuel to get the army to the next objective. So, the idea that we, it would just be a kind, a kind of a rolling front all the way up to the border for the next, um, you know, till the end of the year is, is probably unlikely. I, I, I have the feeling that once we see this sort of final push to the western bank of the Dnieper by the Ukrainian forces, that will probably reach the culmination of this offensive for Ukraine. Um, and it has been very successful. But every army has to then uh, re- reconstitute itself, resolidify itself, consolidate gains, and and secure its position for additional offensives at some point in the future. I think we're very close to that point for Ukraine.
0: I agree. I wouldn't be surprised if we see something around Zaporizhia, just because it's it's just incrementally one step further. It's going to be tough. And we we talk about logistics all the time. But imagine if you are one of these newly conscripted, mobilized Russian people, you came out of your desk job for some factory a month ago, and you're now being sent to the front line. During a winter for five five months, roughly, you are going to be in some village that probably first of all, they don't want you there. Second of all, you probably don't have power, you probably don't have running water, and you probably don't have any form of sewer system. And you're going to be stuck there. And you're likely going to be under occasional artillery bombardment, pinpoint strikes from HIMARS and other Western systems. And you're just going to be dejected. And you're going to be sitting with troops that our full-time troops who probably don't even want you there, who have been decimated on the front line and all they're going to be talking about is when are we going to you know fight next? I don't think that's going to be great for morale going forward. And then you have, almost diametrically opposed to that is going to be the Ukrainians who have a battle-hardened smaller army that is going to be reinforced by They're mobilized, fully mobilized conscripts that have been training on Western ways of war and using modern Western equipment. It's going to be really interesting to see how a demoralized Russian force having to pull weapons from stockpiles that are older and older as attrition occurs competes against a Ukrainian force that is ever more modern as more and more modern weapons are delivered and released to them.
1: Yeah, we will uh, We'll keep an eye on all of these developments as they happen. But uh, let's move on to another topic of some interest, ongoing protests in
0: Iran. This is getting interesting. I. It's not at the point where I actually think the government is in danger yet, but the fact they've lingered – and they've found new new motivation new icons like d- varying ages are involved it's st- it's really interesting i mean it's go- i'm excited to hear what you have to say on this but it still seems to be mostly in the large cities and i'm unsure if it in the end is going to to do much i don't know if you can go back to the 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 old but i don't think it's going to cause any change And this is all with the backdrop of an Ayatollah who is aging in unknown health. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens.
1: Yes, it is. It is fascinating that they've gone on this long. Uh, 40 days of protests. So more than a month of protests uh, over the death of – Nika Shakarami. I probably got that wrong, but we will move on. Uh, so th- it's, it's, been really, it's been really interesting that there was this level of discontent, because obviously, while similar to, I'm going to make the parallel, similar to George Floyd, that the death itself is an isolated incident, but the resentment, that existed inside of the community was long simmering. And we're seeing, I think, a similar dynamic play out now with the difference being that the, the government in Iran is ill-equipped to address the underlying concerns of the protesters. So does this get away from the Iranian regime in the medium term? I don't know. Uh, obviously, it's not a good look. To have you know ongoing street protests for uh, more than a month, uh, you know, 23 cities, 12 provinces, as of October 27th, according to uh, the Institute for the Study of War. So, sort of widespread, continued widespread protests, and a an attack occurred on the uh, Sh- Shiraz shrine. Uh, apparently perpetrated, uh, according to Iranian state media, by a, an Afghan member of the Islamic State. So, you know, ongoing sectarian violence as well in the region. You know, the, Iran is going to blame the US and Israel, the great the Satan, the West in general, the great Satan for the attack, um, but also will blame protesters for distracting. Internal security services, which might otherwise have been able to disrupt the attack. So this is um, this is an ongoing sort of low-level conflict inside of Iran that we're going to keep our eye on. Um, no huge developments this week, but just the fact that they're continuing to go on is is pretty shocking. Um, other big news this week. Uh, CCP had a big. They had a big meet and greet, didn't they?
0: They did. One the person twi- seemed to tw- uh, be uninvited mid mid-meeting, <laughs> mid meeting, though.
1: <laughs> mid mid meeting, Mister Hu Jintao, former premier. premier, um, was forcibly escorted from from the meeting, seemingly. So a lot. Of China watchers got very interested in that because these are very stage managed affairs. So anything like that that happens, um, there's a lot. There's a there's a there's an audience for it, and it, everyone else is trying to figure out what what happened. So it seems like this was a message that it's uh,
0: it's Xi's party now. The one thing that I would say that seems to go against him and that and he can cry he and he can to. cry if he wants to. <laughs> The one thing I would say that makes me wonder if it's for a domestic audience is what I heard is that the closed caption footage that we've all seen of him being escorted out was was not played on domestic media. So it was not discussed and all kind of high level video of it used other segments of the meeting where he was still there, if it was me, and I was trying to say this for a domestic audience, that who who was out, and I think we need to give a little context, Hu Jintao really led the kind of the more modern opening up of China to the world, early 2000s, very different style from Xi, and it definitely could be orchestrated, uh G trying to say this is the G party now. And you know he 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 won the votes. So I think it was unanimous as it is always. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. 5 more years.
1: Yeah. Hugh Hugh Jintao, much more uh reformist minded, much in retrospect, much more liberal than G. Um, the, the premier from, I want to, what, 2000 to 2000, 11,
0: maybe 10. 10? Yeah. To the one, 2011. To 11, something like that. So,
1: um, de- uh, definitely, definitely was the, the head of the party during a period of great opening up of Chinese and society. great
0: economic growth
1: and great economic prosperity, a very reform minded in terms of economics, uh, and there was an ongoing conflict between uh, Hugh, the, each t- to take a step back. And I think maybe next week we can do a deep dive on the CCP and, and G and the, uh, maybe a brief primer on, on the history of the CCP because this is a very interesting topic that a lot of people, uh, this is going to be increasingly important in geopolitics. I, more you know, Not that it's not now, but much more so in the next 10, 15, 20 years. The all-party conflicts are handled internally. No one ever talks about inter-party conflict outside of the party.
0: You don't talk about fight so. That's the first rule. You do not. The first rule of
1: the CCP is you do not compare Xi Jinping to (laughs) Li Putin. And the second rule is you do not talk about fight (laughs) Yes. And the – so what happens is – there are schools of thought that come up around these high-level leaders like G, like Hugh, and their acolytes and themselves, they write white papers and they circulate the papers and there are these vigorous policy arguments that are all contained internally. And then one group will will be ascendant um, and the other group will bide its time. And uh, in this case, Hugh's Acolytes have been out of power now for uh, 10 years, and they're going to be out of power for another five. And this seemed to be a very clear signal. I think there's the internal Chinese audience. There's the national Chinese audience. Then there's the global audience. I think this was for an internal CCP audience, an internal Chinese Communist Party audience, the people in the room seeing literally the former leader, uh, one who still has acolytes in the party, people who are aligned with his worldview, physically carried out of the meeting uh, and no one made eye contact with him. And Xi just kind of had this uh, very small kind of smile on his face as, as he got carried, basically carried out of the room. So I think this is a very, very much a uh, Xi is in charge. Xi Jinping thought is now um, basically the only way to think, and uh, there there will be no and it was So that's my. It reason.
0: was enshrined in the more of his thinking. Every time he gets reelected, if you call it an election, more of his thought is enshrined in the Communist Party ideology. And I think when you look at the people around him, I'm no expert, but most of them have obviously aligned with his thought process, but they're very anti-Taiwan and they are pro-unification through military force.
1: I think we're definitely walking down that path for sure.
0: Five years. Five years.
1: I'm, he's, I'm I Yeah, five years. I mean, it's I think it's possible. I think you said this offline earlier that, that you didn't know if he could he could get another a, a fourth term, which would be really radical. I think if he's in good health and that he is in the midst of a invasion of Taiwan, he's probably going to be kept on. We'll probably I say. think they would so, push the Congress. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think they probably would push push back the Congress. And we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, if I were in government today in any country in the West, the US, NATO, Taiwan, Japan, AUKUS, uh, I would be picking up the phone to the Taiwanese defense minister and saying, what do you need and how fast can we get it to you? Because the their t- clock is ticking here and it's going to... What we do now will determine, in, in, in many ways, the outcome. Because unlike Ukraine, where we could get weapons into the theater, continually, uh, China will continually, pro- continually, continually, China will, in all likelihood, be able to deny our access to the area uh, around Taiwan, and Taiwan will they, we will not be able to get them anything, uh, in all likelihood for an extended period of time. And so it'll really be up to what is on the island and the, the grit and determination of the Taiwanese government and the Taiwanese people to push back the initial Chinese invasion.
0: And I, to that effect, I've seen commentary about increasing the the time that everyone has to serve in Taiwan. So I think it's currently 18 months. They were talking about moving it to two years, something in that effect. Uh, along with, I think we... A lot of us have seen the memes, you know, one in-law for every home, one javelin for every family. It's it's sad in a way that that's where we've come, where we think that this vibrant – now a vibrant democracy, higher standard of living than mainland China is under threat. And I've seen some commentary that the mic- – their excellence and their significant part of the microchip industry will somehow save them. I don't think Xi cares. I think at a certain point that in a more Western world, yes, that would stop you. Just like oil has has stopped folks from, you know, being able to turn off the taps to stop folks from doing actions they may otherwise do. I don't think she cares. And the reason why I think that is uh, one the, the, the COVID policy. It, if you have such a restrictive policy that was discussed at this Congress and set, you know, kind of enshrined as like, yes, this is our thought process, it is so detrimental to the society that most people want and the economy. But to G is about control, you know, absolute restriction is what he likes. And that lines up with his thought process, his ideology. So I don't think it's going to, it's going to be a tense few years in Taiwan, for sure.
1: The other interesting thing about Xi's rule is it has far more in common with imperialist China than it does with post-revolutionary Maoist China. A lot of commentary about Xi compares him to Mao Zedong, but also to Deng Xiaoping, both these massive figures in, in post-revolutionary China. Obviously, Mao, father of the revolution. I actually see more continuity with the emperors of uh, pre-revolutionary China, uh, you know, 19th century rulers and earlier than I do to previous communist rulers. He his worldview is anchored in this idea of Chinese exceptionalism, and that he rules a uh, Ch- China a middle kingdom, which is is and should be rightfully the center of the world. And it's a real affront to that worldview to have Taiwan nominally independent, but as you say, has a higher standard of living is has greater scientific achievement in, in chips um, and is democratic that has a claim to legitimate Chinese rule and legitimate Chinese identity as the inheritors of the uh, Kumutang, the, the Chinese um, Republic, the nationalist forces that evacuated to, to what was Formosa um, after the revolution. So, it's galling, but it has to be. It has to be drive him absolutely insane, like a pebble in his shoe. And I think he he to claim the mantle of greatness of of both for China and himself. I think it's inevitable that he will attempt to reunify Taiwan with the mainland uh, by force if necessary and it increasingly looks like that will be the only way that he's able to achieve it in the time frame he needs to achieve
0: it during the conver- congress or right after I, I forget when exactly they did publish their most recent economic numbers and they were more positive i mean somewhat not surprising you know i never trust chinese economic data but it will be that's a tough corner of the world to live in I think sometimes we forget how lucky we have it. As much as we have problems in our backyard, uh, we don't have the same level of issue, right? I mean, just right there, we have China, India, Pakistan, all nuclear arms, Russia, nuclear superpower, plus Japan off the coast, could make a nuclear weapon whenever they wanted, and elect not to, and then – you think about who have they fought wars with right like, almost all those countries have fought each other in in recent memory you know in living memory so i think we sometimes geography is uh, it's very important from a from a kind of geopolitical standpoint and i'm just happy where we we are where we are one one thing i would like to add and I know we moved beyond Russia and the Ukraine, but I just want to jump back to it real quick. Is kind of the messaging we're hearing right now. So the messaging we're hearing out of Russia has moved from, and this this is just it's just appalling, shocking. It almost makes me laugh because it's so ridiculous. It is so really ridiculous. I mean, it does make me laugh. It's just it's just sad. It's like sad laughing. At first, the Russians were going into the Ukraine to denazify it. We all thought that was hilarious. They're now saying they're going in to desatanize the Ukraine. Like, where? Like, what? What? What is? First of all, what is that? Second of all, you're like, I'm gonna. They're all Satan, and we have to destroy them. But where do you go from there? Like, two months from now. They can't go beyond. I mean, look, this is insane. Like, first it was Nazis, really bad. Everyone hates Nazis. Now it's Satan. It's like, what are they going to say next week? You know, it's, I, I don't even, I don't understand at times how the local domestic audience hears that and doesn't just break out laughing. And more and more, I'm starting to think they do, considering nearly a million people have fled the country, men, fighting age men.
1: I think you're right about that. On to our last topic, our weekly news roundup, one ping only. Eight dollars with a single ping? Your ping, Vasily. One
0: ping only. Uh,
1: let's go through a roundup of uh, of the news in brief. Uh, Shoigu, Russian's defense minister, has claimed that his partial mobilization of 300,000 reservists was complete. Touched on that a little bit earlier. So let's see how long it takes for them to need to call up another 300,000 men. Uh, Germany and America's uh, GDP rose in the last quarter for which we have numbers. Uh, America 2.6%, Germany up 3% in the third quarter. Lots of talk of dirty bomb, false flag by the uh, the Russians uh, on calls between the defense ministry in Russia and their counterparts in Europe and Mark Milley. Uh, America. Uh, that's right. Mark Milley. Um, they claimed that Ukraine was preparing to detonate a dirty bomb. Uh, we, we think this is probably a false flag. We do. That, laying the
0: groundwork. It, it is abjectly ridiculous. So uh, yes, it, it can be nothing else in my mind. Just setting the groundwork for the Russians to, uh, try and convince a domestic audience. It's not an international audience, but a domestic audience that the use of tactical nuclear weapons is somehow warranted.
1: Yeah. I think you're probably right about that. Uh, Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro and Lula da Silva are headed to a runoff on October 30th. I had kind of pegged this as a, as Lulu's to lose um, earlier, and it seems like he couldn't quite get 50%. over the, yeah, the threshold. Okay. So. So it looks like they are going to head to a runoff. Um, Jai Bolsonaro, of course, uh, Brazil's answer to Donald Trump, kind of a kind of a strange guy. Um, Elon Musk completed his purchase of Twitter.
0: And on the geopolitical front, front he uh, refused to. He took back his offer to continue to uh, pay for Starlink in Ukraine, and then reinstated it.
1: <laughs> kind of a curious guy. Not really sure what what drives him. Liz Truss is out. Rishi Sunak is in. We'll see how that goes in Britain. I know we touched on uh, Britain a little earlier. Uh, I don't, I don't know what's going on over there. Probably
0: first prime minister to uh, have given up his U.S. green card in less than two years before becoming prime minister.
1: Yeah, probably right about that. I know he's the first non-white prime minister. Uh, Rishi Sunak, of course, South Asian.
0: Yes, his he's of Indian ancestry via Kenya. Oh,
1: interesting. I didn't I didn't realize he also was a uh, was a V Kenyan. Uh also extraordinarily wealthy, so something like 750 billion dollars. His wife,
0: uh his wife is the I think the a daughter of the founder of Infosys. So very and also she is considered non-domiciled for tax purposes in the UK. So uh Rishi and his wife both uh spent time in our fair state of California and actually met while at Stanford in graduate school.
1: Oh, interesting. Very close to where I am sitting right now. Uh, That uh, that sums it up for the weekly news roundup. Andrew, any uh, parting thoughts?
0: I would say in the end, it was kind of of run-of-the-mill. I mean, no big war news, uh, but we did find out that the Chinese have secret police stations throughout Europe. So it'll... We'll see what happens next week.
1: We will Here on the we'll see show. what happens next, next week. Let's uh, let's plan on same bat time, same bat channel. Thanks everybody for listening today to Armchair Generals. We hope to see you again next week. Have a good night.